Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 14. This week I've got Beth Bate, who is the director of the DCA. She's been in that post now for just over a year um, and we chat sort of through that process of, of why she applied and why it was a really interesting step in her career. And we also sort of uncover a lot of the insight into what what a director actually does day to day and how she manages to organise a really hectic and, and sort of madcap schedule. And then we go on to talk about the future. So obviously there's big plans that have been recently released for the DCA, but also in terms of, of the city and how we take things forward and the approach. It's a really interesting conversation, but I think this one and, and weeks gone past as well, I'm starting to realise how short 40 minutes to an hour really is and that I can have a massive list of questions, but it's more about getting the, the conversation to ebb and flow as a nice natural chat. And often that means that a bunch of the questions have to sit to one side. So whether that means we will revisit some of the guests at some point to ask these questions or when we're moving it around maybe a slightly different theme. But at the moment, I'm quite happy just focusing in on the sort of stories and journeys of everyone, which I think is working really well at the moment. And had some really nice tweets this week of people who have been enjoying them and sort of going through the back catalogue as well, which is, is fantastic and is exactly why I'm doing it. But let's get into the podcast. So this is episode number 14 and this is with Beth Bate. It's funny that when you try to think about at what point you you stepped into this role and what, what point you became ready for a particular role. And you can and you can look to the couple of months before that or the previous year before that, but most of the time the the foundations have been put in that place for that much, much earlier. I don't just mean in terms of an education, but the, the, the types of the type of work you enjoy doing, the type of people you like working with, the type of environment you want to create, the kind of impact you want to have goes back way further. Well it does it does for me anyway, and I and I, I think my journey to Dundee and to Dundee Contemporary Arts um uh, it didn't just start in the foot, you know, in the in the year or so before I was appointed. It was um, it was a it's a culmination, I guess, of an awful lot of factors and, and circumstances and pa- and passions that were developed over, dare I say, it decades. <laughs> I'm 40 in May, so I feel like I've got um. Um, doing some interesting stock taking <laughs> of, of my life, and and the journey to Dundee from where I grew up in Wales in in the Brecon Beacons is quite it's quite a, a long one. I grew up in a very small Welsh village uh, where there wasn't a huge amount going on at all, and there were a couple of buses a day. And it's a very beautiful part of the world. It's called Idel. It's in the Brecon Beacons, which is a national park, but. I can see where my parents were, you know, were very happy bringing up young children there. But the time I got to a teenager, it was slowly going out of my mind, and and certainly I was getting very bored and getting very bored at school. And there was a lot of concern <laughs> that I wasn't always the best behaved, and I think there was yeah, just a bit of concern about what what on earth people were going to. What else are they going to do with me in some ways? I mean, you know, I was I was quite academic. I was and I was bright, but I felt like I never quite found my my place. Somehow, I wasn't quite sure what, what where I should be directing myself and, and and what should we what should we doing. All of this combined with the you know, I guess the usual teenage boredom was a bit of a, a, bit of a terrible cocktail. I can't even remember whose idea it was. It must have been my mum and my dad's. I joined a, I joined a youth theatre, which was part, attached to Theatre Paris, which is the big theatre company in, in, in that county at the time. And they had the most incredible youth theatre. And it was half an hour drive away, which in Welsh terms is basically next door. So um, every Tuesday evening, my mum would drive me there and then drive home again. And then she'd come back like three hours later and pick me up. So she did two hours a night to take me off to this, to this youth theatre. Which was which was genuinely completely life changing, and I and I had never 
experience, I guess that's the, you know, you think about formative cultural experiences and starting to get an understanding that there's a whole other world. I wasn't aware of any of that. I mean, we didn't live close to a theatre. We might sometimes go and see something in, 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 in Cardiff at Christmas time, but it was, um, it was, uh, you know, we didn't live close to art galleries. It was just, there was just nothing like that where I, I grew up. Um, it's very beautiful and rich in other ways, but it's, at the time, 20, 30 years ago, it was quite a different landscape. The youth theatre, Mid Paris Youth Theatre, was was hugely demanding. There was a director there who, who demanded a lot of, of, of the young people that, that took part, aged 14 to 21, and we did serious proper plays. Um, the first play I was in was um, The Visit by Friedrich Durand-Matt. And the amazing thing about the youth theatre as well is that the, the, if anybody was allowed to be involved, there was no, you don't have to audition or anything like that. If you wanted to be involved, you could be involved. It was completely open and, and accessible to everybody. But um, the, the, there was an absolute demand on, on quality and standards and rigorous rehearsals and understanding texts and pulling scenes apart and understanding intentions and words in a way that I'd never, I'd never come across before, and I found it completely, I found it challenging and difficult and liberating and fun and all the things that you kind of need when you're, you know, a bored and bright fourteen-year-old. But all the things I think a lot of the time you need from cultural experiences, generally, and and that youth theatre was 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 quite remarkable. And it's only in, in years past I've looked back at it and I've realised how astounding it was in many ways we won awards we went to we performed on stage at the, at the national in, in theater in london on the Laurence olivier stage and they took down you know two coach loads of welsh kids to perform on there when we won this award i mean i look back now and i think i don't know i mean they must have been bonkers really to, <laughs> to do that i'm not sure i could have cope with it it was pretty it was pretty astounding and it, and it really made me understand what it meant to be committed to a to a to a, a really strong artistic vision and the people that ran that that's what drove it that's what completely powered what they were um what the, what they wanted for us they had a really strong vision of how good we could be and they knew how good we were um, and to have that level of trust and that level of expectation at such a young age i think was quite was hugely for, was hugely formative hugely formative and even though you know I'm not in the theatre world now, and I've you know many friends and colleagues who who are, it wasn't it's not the format there. It's not the it's not the theatre in itself that was the, that was key. It was that commitment to completely open accessibility. If you could get there, you could be in it basically. But that also that commitment to to quality and and to demanding and expecting the the, the best. Which was which had which had a particular, yeah, lasting effect, I guess. So I didn't grow up around art galleries at, at all, particularly. Um, but I had hugely committed mum and dad, I guess, who were who were very interested in. Um, they are both interesting and interested people, and despite the fact that we'd moved to you know the the the, the, the middle of Wales, they uh, were very keen to get us out and about and doing things but they were also people that had a lot of drive and a lot of energy themselves and um it's funny because I was just back at home yeah when I was at home my mum and dad have both retired now my dad is has always been a big part of the rugby club in the village and he's now one of the organizers the secretary for the male voice choir that he sings in my mum's hugely involved with what's happening locally and what's going on and I think I just I grew up around people who were who were super engaged and had agency. And I remember as a kid, you know, there's a the village had a whole street full of rundown old shops that had been empty for ages. And my mum was fed up of looking at them and got together with a group of her pals who felt the same. And they got those all their children together and we made Christmas decorations, huge big Christmas decorations using old CDs hanging up and foil decorations and, and we got the keys for the shops and we decorated all the shop windows for for, for Christmas and that yeah, was up there for a month and I mean that's a really small thing that's like a community craft family craft activity 
But the fact that, you know, my mum was the sort of person that could look at something like that and say, well, we can do something about that. We can make, we can make some change here. We can get involved. We can do something. And that level of commitment and making things happen that my dad has, a well, has as well, you just, when you, when you grow up around that kind of energy and, and interest, it's quite hard for it not to be infectious, I guess. Which is funny because it's, you know, making a massive leap forward now to being in Dundee. It's one of the things that I really love about being in Dundee. And it's, people talk a lot about the size and the scale of Dundee, but it's, but I, it's genuinely true. And as, a, and as a relative newcomer, I've been here for just over a year now. It's, it seems to me that it combines the, the possibilities and the potential to have impact and to make change and to make positive change by being open and by finding the right people to talk to and by supporting other people, being at things, by making the ask when you need to, um, by, you know, talking the talk about Dundee and about and, and about making sure that, you know, you give it, giving it the profile it deserves on, a, you know, when you're outside of the city. All, all of those, I think, stem from that, kind of the best, some of the best things of, of small cities linking back to some of the best things in village life. You know, knowing people, being part of a network, feeling connected—all, all of that is really key. And yeah, in Dundee, you come, you combine that with the cultural and creative offers that are here, which was, you know, what was lacking in many ways in my, you know, my, my, my youth and my teenage years. When you were looking at the, the post for the DCA, mm. um, do you think you made any of those connections? Um, not to the extent that I have now, but I think that I was certainly part of the appeal when I was first looking at the job description. I knew DCA I'd visited before, but before I decided to apply, I came and did a bit of a secret shopper trip. And there was a big focus in the way that people were talking about the role on, the fa- on, on civic responsibility and civic connections. And this is not just about running an art centre in the middle of the city, it's about being it's about being connected and it's about profiling the city and it's about supporting those mm-hmm. that are within the city but also reaching out much, much further and, and being part of the appeal that brings other people to, to, to the city as well. So that civic responsibility um, element was pretty strong in the way that, that the post was described. That obviously struck a chord with me and interested me. But the day that I came up to um, to Dundee as a kind of slightly secret visit, I thought I'll just come and see, have a look around the city, obviously have a look around DCA, but get, get the lay of the land for the actual place itself, because it's not just me that would be moving, uh, I have a family to move as well. So it's a, it's a big deal to suddenly say to everyone. And the secret shopper trip was not a success. At the time I knew two people in Dundee and I bumped into both of them almost immediately <laughs> and then um, and then there were other people I know in Scotland uh, and some funders were based in Edinburgh who as I was getting off the train I bumped into and they, you know they all completely sussed straight away what I was doing here I was like oh man and it was quite a it was quite a good introduction actually to, to Dundee life and that kind of that you will see people you know all the time and um, you have to be prepared for that. Yeah, there's a sort of catch-22 as if you're not going to get away with anything. Yeah. But it's nice that you're around yeah. everyone all the time. It's, yeah, I like it. I like that because um, you're, held, you're held responsible at very close quarters, which is good, but it also means you've got, you know, I live up in the West End now and I, you know, walk home every evening, walk in to work in the morning you know always see someone to say hello to or say hi to and uh, you know that that community feel is sounds quite i don't know it's like a cheesy way of putting it but it is that and it does, and when you when you have that uh you miss it when it's when it's not there so it's something i do value and was that element of it enough for in your mind to go yeah, I'll, I quite fancy this. Or was were there other little bits and pieces that, that sort of made up for it? the the appeal of DCA was there was there was there was a lot there. It wasn't just the fact that it was a, so much about a civic role. Um, it was absolutely about the quality of the the program and the four program areas that we have here 
with our exhibitions, the cinema, uh, print studio, uh, and and our learning program, uh, and and being really dedicated, I guess, to the importance of creativity and and the physical act of making, and having an organisation which not doesn't just uh, isn't just about seeing. Um, and, and viewing, um, well, those, those are two of my favourite things. <laughs> it's also about it's also about making and doing, and the fact that that's embodied that is embodied in this building as well made it hugely appealing. Um, DCA does have a national and international reputation, so to take you know over the reins at, at an organisation that um, that already has that is. Is, is always appealing, <laughs> of course. Uh, and the building itself, I think, was was a huge was, was a huge draw. Um, it's it's a purpose built building. It's designed by a pretty visionary architect. It does very strange and clever things. The way it pulls people around into different parts of the building and how we sit alongside each other. Um, and you look at the, the, the footprint of the building itself, it's, considering what we pack in here, it's not that big, I think. <laughs> it feels like we... People love it. People really respond to the building. And and there's something which that's grown over the last year as well since being here. Because in, in, until you're here for, for, for a stretch of time, really at least a year, actually... Only at that point you get to see the building and all of its different rhythms at different times of the day. You know, our doors open at 10 in the morning. People are start, staffed well before that. And closes at midnight or one o'clock in the morning on weekends. It's And within that you think about what's happening with exhibitions and um, the artists there and the events programme, the talks that we have going alongside that. The cinema uh, and the screenings you know, every day, hugely popular, that going alongside all of their events as well. The learning programme, which brings in people from all over the city, much further afield, and school children and specialist groups. And all of that combined with the print studio, right at the heart of the building, that has people making work constantly, as well as visiting artists and residencies and research going on. And on top of that, you have jute in the cafe bar and people come in to drink and meet friends and have a meal. And it's, a, it's busy and bustling and loved and used. And it's not until you're here for that, that, you know, a long stretch of time, you get to see who's in at different times of the day, doing what sort of things when. It's a really fascinating thing to watch unfold. So I'm, I'm completely fascinated by it. I love it. <laughs> so when you first got that role, being mm. sort of thrown into the building and starting, that must have been quite an intimidating thing. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. I've been not, <laughs> I didn't find it intimidating. It's <laughs> probably something completely wrong with me. No, not intimidating. I think that I was incredibly geared up for it and... The recruitment process was quite long, and so by the time I was appointed, I mean, I was absolutely, I was just chomping at the bit just to get started and get going, and I actually came up for my first board meeting and met everybody before, it was a few weeks before I'd even started, because I was just just desperate to get cracking. And I think that there's, there's no doubt I was aware that it was, it was going to be, there's no doubt it was I was aware it was going to be a, a big undertaking, and in the first few weeks, meeting every member of staff was super important and trying to get an understanding of what what goes on here. So you went around and met everyone? Within everybody the... had, we had face-to-face time, I had face-to-face time with everybody and I still try to do that with people who have started as well. We're a bit behind in our scheduling at the moment. But, um, so I met with everybody who was, who, who was here and that's... 70 odd members of staff so that was quite but in order to yeah but in order to get to know an organization you have to start you have to start there i guess is that Um, something you've done before in positions or is that a new thing you've tried no and and this and and not was on that scale not not certainly not on on the scale of meeting 
70 people over a couple of couple of months. Um, but it was important I got to, to know people more than just a name badge, and even if it was just a 20-minute chat, that felt an important thing to be able to do so people had had their time with me as well as me having mm. their, my time with them. And I think it was about trying to start to understand the organisation more fully, having having to having to start with having to start with people, and looking at what we're really good at and what needed improving, um, and what people here were really proud of, and perhaps the things they might be less so. <laughs> it's quite an interesting word. It, no, it's not. It's not one I would use. I think maybe I'm, that's just my perception <laughs> of being dropped into that yeah. sort of organisation. Well, I guess I didn't feel dropped in. You know, I was kind of, I was really, I was quite carefully. I'd had such the, the recruitment process was such. I'd had such a lot of information in advance. I'd been reading business plans. I'd seen funding applications. I'd seen a company accounts. I'd seen staffing structures. I'd met people at the board meeting. I'd started emailing board member and my chair about certain you know about sort of changing over and handing over and handover from the interim director as well. So yeah, it was a huge amount to to to, to take on. But you know that's part of it you know it's just a huge to-do list <laughs> we've all got those <laughs> so did, I think I was just very I was very geared up for it but I'd I'd spent um the last uh, in, in in 2014 we're jumping around a little bit in I'd had a career working in in arts and predominantly visual arts for for, for a long for a long time and for when I was living in Newcastle for about 10 years I was running an organisation called Great North Run Culture and we commissioned um, artwork, predominantly contemporary art projects in response to the Great North Run, which is the world's largest half marathon. And we worked with artists at all stages of their careers. We had a big partnership with Northumbria Uni through to Turner Prize winners like Douglas Gordon and, and Mark Wanninger and invited people to come and make work for us that was uh, shown um, in, the, in the autumn of every year. Um, so quite a quick commissioning timetable, turning around about f- f- five or six commissions a year as part of that program, and it started out, you know, in two thousand four as one woman freelance outfit doing a one-off project for Brendan Foster, and it grew and grew. So by the time I left in twenty fifteen, um, yeah, twenty fifteen, there were five of us, and we had ongoing funding from the Arts Council, ongoing sponsorship deal with the Great North Run, um, and money from Heritage Lottery Fund alongside that as well to fund a lot of our activities. So we, we it was an amazing organisation and one I was hugely proud to have grown, but I did get the sense that I wanted to, it felt like it maybe I'd achieved all I could at that particular point with that organisation and I wasn't quite sure where to take it next. And I was accepted onto the Claw Leadership Programme, which is um, a phenomenal, life-changing programme for people who are already working within the sector and who are already in some kind of position of leadership, but that enables you to really focus and consider next steps um, and what you might want to do and how you might get there. And it's completely unique. It's an astounding project. So if you're accepted onto it, quite a rigorous recruitment process. And there were 24 of us in my cohort, mostly from the UK, some internationals from Chile, Egypt, Hong Kong. And um, the program's really unique in that they um, pay for someone to do your job for you for a year. So you have a year in which to focus on leadership training and very intense residential programs, lots of introspection and reflection. You're assigned a coach, you're assigned a mentor, you have a training and travel budget that you can use throughout the year. And you're introduced to the most incredible range of cultural leaders who come and talk to you all directly about their experiences, their leadership journeys, their challenges, what they found tough, how they cope with the difficult times. People talking about failure is obviously sometimes more interesting and useful than people talking about their successes. So 
the opportunity that affords you is 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 huge. It was through that year that I that was the year I knew I wanted to get my teeth into a big organisation, and I did some work uh, as part of that year. I did a I did a placement at the British Museum for three months, and then I continued working with them as freelancing after I'd um, finished the, 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 that piece of work. But the the British Museum, I was working within the digital media and publishing team and I was working on a, a project around big data. And if you told me a couple of years ago I was going to go and do a project at the British Museum on big data, <laughs> I would have probably um, <laughs> laughed as I am laughing now, but I became fascinated by data because it's, a, there is, it's essentially stories and it's people and it's information. and 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 how and where where and how we can collect data you know responsibly and use it carefully i think is is a is a hugely rich area for development it's been brilliant to come to this organization and i have a head of comms who shares that kind of passion so we all get very excited about data-driven strategies and things like that but the placement in the british museum was really vital for me as well and and getting first hand experience working with different teams in there particularly around front of house and visitor services getting i was allowed to go and just do lots of shadowing and asking lots of annoying questions as, as part of all of that claw learning experience as well so that had a huge impact as i think as well as enabling me to really understand what i wanted to do enabling me to really unpick why I wanted to do it and ambition is a really difficult word for lots of people to use it's difficult particularly for women to use the word ambition people don't like to be seen as ambitious it's a negative thing particularly for women what I learned over that year doing the Claw Leadership Programme is if you can articulate where your ambition comes from and what it is you want to achieve and why you want to achieve it and that ambition is no bad thing it's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm ambitious because I think I can do well at leading an organisation. And an organisation like this changes people's lives. Arts and culture can change people's lives. And I know that firsthand. That happened to me as a teenager. And I know that can happen to other people. So I know that my drive comes from the desire to make that change and to make that happen. And when that is at the heart of everything that you do, then you've always got that to go back to. You've always got that to, to rest on. And it means that sometimes things seem, you know, can seem big or challenging, but it's much harder to be intimidated when you have that at the core of what you, of what you want to do. Obviously, the title director is quite ambiguous. <laughs> sort of, I don't think, I don't really have an understanding of what your, your days are like and what the actual, like, what does a director actually do? What do you do all day? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. And the honest answer is my days are hugely varied. And my, if you look, compared my one week to the next, they would be you know, startlingly different. And... I think the role encompasses a, a, a number of really key areas. So I guess overall I'm responsible for the strategic and artistic direction of the organisation. And my job is to work with the board and to work with my um, senior managers to set that, to decide what our programmes are going to be, to decide the type of work that we might want to do, the type of organisation we want to be, the sorts of people we want to work with. So the post is also about um, being a figurehead for the organisation. So my job is very externally focused. So I'm out and about a lot and representing DCA with other organisations, with funders, with potential sponsors, with artists or practitioners that we might want to work with. Certainly looking at building national and international partnerships is a really big, big part of my role, as well as making sure that we are really rooted in the city as well. So it would be me that represents the organisation. Uh, lots of city meetings and partnership projects with other organisations in the city. Uh, first and foremost, I'm responsible for the building. I have a 
fantastic um, deputy director, my head of operations who looks after the building and the building's team, but at the end of the day, lots of those big decisions come back to me. I'm responsible for the fundraising, making sure we have enough money coming in, and um, I answer to the board if we don't have enough. (laughs) It's a real mix, so I could be up to my eyes in business plans and funding applications and uh, budget setting in one week. And the next, I might be at a film conference for a day. And the day after that, I might go and do two studio visits with two artists who I think might be interesting to add to the programme. And the day after that, I might be having a meeting with Dundee City Council about the building. We could be doing more different parts or doing things differently. It's a very wide and pretty varied role that requires you to be able to work at quite a, a, a macro level to be able to see things um, from a, you know quite objectively and to take a, an overview of the of the organization as a whole but it also requires you to absolutely be able to get into the detail very quickly and to pick up that pick that up very very quickly as well so it's a it's quite a, it's, you have to be able to shift your focus from the from the large and the strategic to the small and the detail both of which are important it sounds like you need to be massively organised. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, a lot of the roles that you've done over the years, I've, I imagine, have required that. And I'm interested to find out if there are any techniques or processes or things that you mm. have that you use in order to help you be mm. more organised or productive. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an odd mix of the old school and the, and the new. <laughs> so I have a moleskin notebook. I write everything down. I make notes a lot and I make myself lots of to-do lists. But I also have Trello boards for most areas of my activity to, that I work on and more recently I've started joining other people into those as well. It's not something which people have used here before so we've started using it with a couple of different teams and that's going really well. People being able to keep track of who's doing what and where and when and what we said we do by what point and why that may or may not have happened. So yeah, love love a Trello board. <laughs> but I also have, and should be very upfront about the support I get. I have an amazing um, administrator who looks after my diary and my travel. And one of the things I realised very quickly when I got here, um, particularly when I was organising one-to-one meetings with seventy members of staff as a diary management, is a huge, huge part of what goes on in this room <laughs> and figuring out where I need to be when and how I'm going to get there and all of that and so uh, I think usually behind every successful and insanely busy person is very often not always but very often is uh, an equally busy <laughs> administrator helping piece all of that together the, th- the reason it works well with me and, and administrator is that Communications at the, is at the core of that, and so I have to be very clear in my head where the priorities are. And of course, I have moments where I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go, oh, "Oh my god, I haven't done that thing," you know. And it's not unusual for me to come to work in the morning and find I've emailed myself in the middle of the night, which is a bit. <laughs> do you do that? Yeah, <laughs> it's so tragic, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, oh, well, you were clearly having a great night, quarter past one. Don't forget to dot dot dot. Oh my gosh, um, <laughs> not every night, but it's not uncommon at all. So um, they're always like nice little surprises when I get to my inbox in the morning. I'm like, oh yeah, I said I was going to do that. Okay, <laughs> um, but I think it's it's quite hard to move away from the old school thing of writing down I think there's something about the act of writing the process of writing in itself is quite useful and I'm sorry but ticking something off on a Trello board is in no way as satisfying as crossing something off on a on a a written to-do list but there's absolutely room there is room for there is room for both I think that there has to be and then I have to combine all of that as well with family life and we have a shared google calendar with my husband which which on the whole works Mostly, um, there's a quite a lot of didn't say you were going to be at that thing, but that's pretty essential as well because in having to combine 
that with two young children and managing one's time and one's energy particularly is pretty um, uh, is, is, is pretty key. What else do I do that keeps me organised? I wonder. I Before I leave at the end of the day, I write down the things which are most pressing on my brain for the next day. So I have a list on my desk waiting for me when I get in the next morning. I can choose to disregard, but it makes me feel slightly happier. A, f- a few years ago, I was quite um, I was quite ill, and I've had quite long periods of illness and injury th- throughout my life. And learning how to manage my work and my time around around that has been quite has been quite important. And and I remember someone I used to work with at, at Great Northern Culture um, um, when we were looking at ways that we could how we could manage my workload if, I, if there was a chance that I might not be well enough to be coming to work the next day and she said well you have to write down your priorities and the things the urgent things that need doing on your desk so if you can't make it in the next day we need we know what needs doing which is one of the most practical things I'd ever heard and um, could only come from the, the mouth of someone who works at an organization like the Great North Run where what they do is just is, is a feat of um, logistics really <laughs> an organization it's incredible but that stuck that stuck with me and it does it, it the process of writing that down in itself is important because it's parked um out of out of out of my brain and I'll quite often when I come in the morning and spend some time just looking at that and deciding it's so easy when you first thing you come in is you open your inbox and you just start plowing through emails and your email box becomes your know, inbox becomes your to-do list which um, is a really reactive way of working and it can stop you from having the time to pull back and look at the bigger stuff that he's doing. You're only, you're only dealing with the urgent stuff and not the important things, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, or the things which haven't got, a, you know, the important stuff which, you know, is lurking but someone hasn't happened to send you an email about that morning. But it's fascinating, isn't it, how people approach their works. And, 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 and my husband, who's a, who works in... Tech and is all super agile and and has you know a thousand and one different ways of managing things and it's always trying to introduce me to new. You should try this way. There's this new thing. There's a new app. There's a new whatever. You know they all use Slack, which I just kind of like. Oh my god, that's like another thing I have to check. I mean, my god. I mean, I've been like I've been so many things because I think I just can't keep up with that. Um, you know, I just about managed to keep on top of my social media. <laughs> Um, I just about managed to get them to my inbox. But another thing to check just makes me win, so we're going to stick with Trello for now. I'm a big fan, a big advocate of Slack. And, you see? Yeah, the people in Fleet will tell you I was constantly yeah. trying to But it works for me because a lot of the people I work with are remote. Yeah. Um, so we have project feeds that then we just do all that there and we can chat yeah. and other ones. And it, it really worked for me, but you've got to find what, what's yeah. right. And I think that's the key. Yeah, and, and then, you can't beat a pen and paper. Yeah, and also, you know, this is a we're a big organisation, but but a huge number of people don't work in the office space. We have a very large front of house team who who staff the box office and shop and and and, and galleries and, and and the cinema. Um, so it's quite easy to walk around the office and go and talk to people and just sit down and say this thing that we need to get signed off by four. Let's have a chat about it, as opposed to sending off another email. Having said that, I do send emails to people sitting, you know, metres away from me all the time. I think that's just, that's the world we live in. I think everyone complained about it 10, 20 years ago, but it's completely, that's just the norm. And um, in the way that it has to exist within a thread as well. Absolutely. That, that conversation mm. you go through isn't going to get written on a post-it and it's not going to be in that chain yeah. that's recorded. And that's something that you need to go back to and go, what did we say we were going to do? What, what did I, what was my amend there? Did that actually, oh no, that did get sent out. Okay, good. Yeah. So it does become, it does become a, a record, I guess, of what, of, of, of where you're at and what, what you should be doing. <laughs> yeah. So in this sort of mad cat world and lifestyle where, yeah, every day is different and there's all so much going on, where for you are the, the moments of joy? The moments of joy. Yeah. What an amazing question. When I open my curtains in the morning, I can see out over the River Tay, and it's incredible. It's absolutely beautiful. This morning it was snowing and just looked um, beyond beautiful. And the sunrises 
you get there in the mornings. It's really hard to start the day in a bad mood when you look out and you can see the river and the roofs of houses and in front of you and the five hills in the distance. I mean, you'd be pretty hard not to be moved by that. Um, and I love that connection to the river and the water. It's, it's, so that brings me, that's one small thing every morning and I'm always up first. I'm irritatingly energetic. <laughs> <laughs> up at seven, juicing for the world. <laughs> so, so annoying. <laughs> morning! <laughs> so that, bring, that brings me, that brings me huge joy. What else brings me joy? Um, on a on a day to day basis, and I know this is partly my job to say it, but genuinely coming into DCA makes me happy. I cross the threshold, I cross the doorway, I see the staff on uh, the front desk. You can see very often visitors milling around. It makes me hugely proud that this place even exists and is so loved and is so used. And there, there's an older couple who um, quite often in the afternoon sit out on the sofa who were there for weeks before one day I said, well, they're here every day, I'm just going to go and say hi and introduce myself. And um, uh, so we always stop for a chat now. And then we, when we moved into our house, it's typical Dundee, isn't it? When we moved into our house, <laughs> Jim and Kathy live four doors down from us. <laughs> so, <laughs> morning! have a little chat with them in the afternoon at DCA that genuinely brings me joy and I know that is a work-related thing but it but it makes me it makes me happy that um, people use the space as a as a social space and come and feel comfortable and happy enough that they just want to sit down and hang out for a little while and read the paper while they sit on the sofa um, I cook I love cooking I love cooking um, I'm usually quite late home from work so I don't cook as much as the family in the evenings as I used to, but that cooking is a really big part of self-care and making sure that I'm looking after myself properly and not getting burned out and managing my energy. And I find it very relaxing, quite, quite therapeutic. So I want to move on a little bit to talk about the city mm. and the future. Um, obviously, quite recently, the proposal for the future of the DCA has been, mm. been launched and that sort of plan going forward and obviously we're in the middle of a, a massive development in the city and a huge amount of change mm. um, so with what's happening how do you see the DCA's role changing mm. within the city? I think DCA will continue in many ways to do what it always has done and and to do that very well. Um, I don't see our role as substantially changing. Um, the core offer of what we do and those programme areas and the way that we in, engage with audiences will, will remain the same. What both the Waterfront Development, the V&A and the Taste Cities deal uh, bid will enable us to do is ramp that up a little I guess um, and it's been really fascinating coming to a city where the, there's a there's a lot of history to the cultural developments here and a lot of people who who I now know and work with on a you know daily basis who've been involved absolutely at the coalface in some in, in some instances for years and years and years <laughs> and you know I arrive here you go. This year is great. <laughs> yes, we know Beth. We built it. <laughs> so it's been a big, a big learning process for me, understanding where that's come from, understanding the history, and the, and the, and the trajectory, and understanding DCA's role in that as well, and how it, it integral how, uh, DCA was to not just changing Dundee. And I've said this before, actually, but it changed perceptions of Dundee as well, which is what will happen again when the V&A opens. Um, it, it, it will ramp things up again. And what I think these types of developments do um, 
is invite us to be much more ambitious and to look at what we do, to really be clear about what we do and why we do it, why we think what we do is important, and to make sure that the organisation as a whole, the building, the staff, the programmes are absolutely singing, I guess. Really thinking about what our potential is and figuring out how we get there. And the VNA, which was talked about a lot during my recruitment process, for example, and what that might mean for DCA, is an incredibly positive gauntlet that's been thrown down, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I view it is that the profile that it will bring the city, the quality of programme that it will be delivering, the number of visitors it will be attracting are all good things for DCA. Um, and being able to be part of that conversation with them and the other organisations on the waterfront and in the city about what we do and how we make sure we reach that potential is the is the exciting thing. It's a hugely risky process, of course. I'm not pretending this is, you know, we're all just going to sail into something and, you know, it's going to work because it has to. It's going to work because people are working incredibly hard to make it work. And there are hugely talented people involved to make that happen. And for DCA to have a real clarity about why we think our work is important and the quality of our programmes and the beauty of our building and the, and the absolute belief that art and culture can enrich people's lives well, powers everything that we do, making sure we absolutely have the best visitor experiences, that we're geared up for the new people coming to the city, that we're able to able to make programming and marketing links with other organisations in the region, um, that we're able to, I guess, be worthy of the, the profile that's going to, uh, the spotlight that's going to be on, on going, going to be on the city. Well, that's a, that's a good challenge to have. That's a, that's a fun thing to think about how we respond to that. And we're in a really strong position to be able to do that well, I think. I think there's also the challenge of, of capturing that audience because you're, mm. you're going to have an influx of people who will come out of the train station mm. and be looking straight out of here. Mm. They'll go there, but then you've got to sort of pull them away from that mm. lure of the waterfront mm. and throw them around the rest of the city and show them yeah. the amazing things that are happening. Yeah. And in many ways, that's the big question, isn't it? It's And it's ensuring that the benefits of that cultural regeneration um, aren't just um, felt by those directly on the waterfront or either of those who are, you know, neighbouring the waterfront. But for regeneration to really work, it has to, it has to work right across the city. And that is a massive ask. And I think we have to be realistic about when, when that happens. And it's not something that 2018... The VNA will open, and you know, 2019, 2020, we'll have some taste cities, many perhaps, and you know, the regeneration of Dundee will be complete, <laughs> and the massive problems of inequality and poverty in the city will all be addressed. It, this is a, this is a long, long game to play. And and I think people obviously are more than aware of that, but we have to be very clear about what we can expect to see in the first couple of years. So what do you think, as a city at the moment, what are the strengths and weaknesses? Of- the strengths of the city... It's a, it's, it's a beautiful city. Um, I know it has absolutely... Like any city has pockets which are less beautiful. That's cities. It's not... You know, a Surrey floral village, that's what cities are like. But it is a gorgeous city with full of big, beautiful, wide vistas, astounding historical buildings, contemporary architecture, the view out to the river and over to the hills. You know, I come at my dentist and I'm on the Perth Road and that's the view. Like, there's something about the, the the fabric of the city itself is is um, is is very special. Um, 
keep banging on about its its size, but it's it's absolutely a manageable city. You can have a good quality of life here. You know, I leave my front door. I, it's a five minute walk to the kids' school down the road. I walk to work and we work fifty minutes later. My husband works near the part of town. Have a coffee at lunchtime. It's easy to meet people who are around and doing things. You can have a, a good quality of life here, which is, um, uh, which I think when you go and visit other cities, particularly really big cities, you realise what a schlep everything can be. And I'm not saying that out of some lazy, some lazy kind of, you know. Oh God, it's you know just such a pain when you've got to spend an hour commuting somewhere. You know, people do that all over the world. That's but there's something about when when you've lived somewhere like this and you're able to have um, a, a, a good quality of life within within a, a particular area within a particular city. It, when you see it not happening in other cities, you realise how lucky you are. Um, so this, so that, so the quality of life that you're able to to have here, the sheer amount of stuff that's going on, the the level at which organisations within what is really a very small city, the level at which organisations are working at is is astounding. And what a thing to, for us to have on our right on our doorstep. It's amazing. Um, other amazing things about the city. People have been hugely welcoming right from the start, um, right from my announcement of people getting in touch on social media saying, hi, welcome to Dundee, to people inviting you around for a bite to eat, or inviting family around for Sunday lunch, or coming to have cups of coffee at work, inviting you to stuff, um, and to be at things, and to take part in things. Um, and when that gets extended to your, you know, to family as well, it makes you feel, that you're at home somewhere and you cannot underestimate the power of a, of a, of a welcome um, and, um, and feeling, um, feeling wanted and invited in somewhere. It makes, that sets the tone for, for, your, for your life in a place. Mm. And I think because of that, there is, there is a real, um, the way it's quite easy to get to know people and to lay in the land is is great, and there's an, an you know there's some big, very big, very formal things happening here, but there are also lots of quite fun informal things that happen as well, and the way that people get together, which is nice. The things which are more challenging, the weaknesses of the city. I think with the city, as I said, with any city, it's a, a city is by its very nature contains inequalities. But they are particularly marked in Dundee. When I was living in Newcastle, apparently at the time the busiest food bank in Newcastle was in sorry, in England was in is in Newcastle, it was in the West End of Newcastle. And and I've since heard, I don't know if this is true, that the busiest food bank in Scotland is in Dundee. So I'm going to couch that in this may or may not be true, but I have heard. But the fact that that might even be a possibility is is a, is a tragedy and, a, and, and an abhorrence. And I absolutely can see how the, the vision for the city and the regeneration of the city is is linked in terms of tackling in in in, in terms of tackling some of that. I, I know that's part of the conversation, um, and part of the reason, but but behind but behind some of the, the developments. But there's no doubt that the inequalities that you see very marked in Dundee are. Quite a weakness is a strange way of putting it, isn't it? Because it's far more complex than that. And I think that there are, I think there are lots of things in the city I, I look at and I kind of wish we could get sorted. And I know it's just a matter of time, and I'm sure they will, but I look at Reform Street and think, I mean, that street is beautiful. My God, it's a gorgeous street. The buildings on there, and it's in a sad state, really sad. And I know there are conversations going on about what, 
might happen on that street and there's some interesting people involved in that and what 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 might be done um but it's it's a shame sometimes it feels like the city planning you know absolutely gets it right sometimes and it's amazing at other times you wonder how particular situations being involved and i know it's not as simple as just city planning that there are commercial interests at stake there as well it's, 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 a, it's a complex picture but for that's for that to be right in the middle of the city and called reform street yeah called reform street i mean like really make it up could you, you know, that. and it's the fact you've got the cared hall on one end and then the big school at the other i mean it's kind of it's incredible and it's I was, we went on the, well, I've been on a, f- a few parades and marches over there in the last, in, in, in the last few months and there's always something quite interesting walking up a street called Reform Street with crowds of people like that and then looking at what's surrounding you. So I guess trying to get that, that, that drawing up approach to those city centre areas is 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 part of it yeah i guess that's 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 one element of that kind of that question around inequalities but it's much bigger and and obviously dundee wide for the future what are your measures for success personally and as part of the, the dca they can be absolutely minute tiny things yeah. Like ticking off your travel boards, or it could be something <laughs> absolutely gigantic. My measures for success—it's interesting, isn't it? Because they shift all the time, and we can be very dismissive of the ones that we've achieved, and then we suddenly don't feel successful again because we've moved on to something else. But personally, this—it's yeah, this is actually a very, a very, very personal one. I need to get my. I need to get my home finished. It's a big, it's a big part of me, and it balances out the, the amount of time and energy I spend um, at, at work and on work. That it's really important to me that I have a home that um, uh, is right for all the family. And we've got it's a lovely house, but we've got quite we've got quite a lot of work to do. We've got some walls to knock down, all of that. So. Um, m- Managing that and making sure I've got a, yeah, it's part of that home and work life balance, um, I guess, as well as a big, is, that's, that, that's a big part for me. Um, and other personal measures for success. It's much easier to think organisationally. Um, but okay, so personally would be home and, and getting everything sorted there. In terms of work and the organisation, a big success for us would be to have some money through the Tay Cities deal. We there's a there's a chance that we will now be included in that bid. We've still got work to do, but that would mean that we can really reshape DCA for the next twenty years because this building has served incredibly well for the last seventeen. But it it needs it needs a refresh and it needs a rethink and it needs to be ready for the yeah for the next twenty years of people coming in and um and, and loving it as much as they have so far. So being able to have the funds to do that to support that properly would be would be a, a really big thing for us. That would be that would be a big deal and. The other big measure for success, I think, is how we respond to the shifting landscape that 2018 waterfront developments will, will, will bring and making sure that we as an organisation, in terms of our programme and our communications and our staffing, are absolutely in the best place to be able to make the most of that and make sure that visitors absolutely see DCA um, as a central part of their visit to Dundee, but also that we don't lose that local connection and the, the you know completely understanding the vitality of of our audiences who come from much closer to come from much closer to home, um, and there are so many different ways in which this landscape could shift that we you know we have to plan for about five different scenarios, 
but getting that right and would be um, uh, getting that right will be will be amazing. Okay. Um, so the last thing is, if anyone wants to keep up to date with with you, how would they do that? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Beth underscore Bait, and you can also follow DCA Dundee, which has all you need to know about the world of DCA, what we're up to, and I do have an Instagram account, but um, it's full of far too many pictures of tat and children to be public, so <laughs> <laughs> that just stays for me and those poor people that have opted to sign into that one. <laughs> That's good, thank you. And that was episode 14 with Beth. I hope you enjoyed it. And a big thanks to Beth for taking the time out of her crazy schedule to, to have a chat. And if you did enjoy it, please do share it. Give us a little tweet. Um, it's really appreciated and it, it's how it's starting to, to spread the audience um, and grow it for the podcast. So I'd really appreciate that. And if you're not following already, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. So until next week, goodbye.